Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we've got Champions League to discuss. Bayern Munich brought in Tuchel to steady the ship, but that looks less likely after Mane busted Sané's lip. Man City, meanwhile, look imperious, but as always, we have to ask why Pep looks so serious. Frank Lampard's Chelsea haven't scored in six hours, while Vinny Jr.'s performance has Graham wanting to bring him flowers. Napoli saw red <laughs> in their clash with Milan, and an all-Northern Italy semifinal could soon be on. I didn't r- want to rhyme Milan with Milan. Uh, because Inter defended their way to a 2-0 win on the road, and Romelu Lukaku carried his share of the load, Benfica's manager Roger Schmidt had 12 players on the bench, but only made one change. Inter fans say he's a mensch. Overall, it was a series of games that had me feeling glee. Was it the same for you, Mr. Joe Lowry? Oh, Taylor, that was so good. I got more glee from that intro than I did from watching these games, but I did really enjoy oh, watching a lot of these games. I love the, uh, the the Sane Mane bit in there is great. Like that is that was the most unexpected tweet that I saw coming in and preparing for these games. Right. Uh, I guess people people are just punching people now because didn't we talk about an, another altercation on the weekend review? I don't know what's going on right now, guys. Uh, people are getting feisty. End end of the season feistiness uh, can be expected. <laughs> teammate on teammate feistiness, less so. Uh, so that was Joe Lowry. British pundits praised Chelsea's heroic efforts with only 10 men. How say you, Mr. Graham Ruthven? Hi, Taylor Rockwell. I mean, wow. I can't quite believe that I've been rhymed in the same sentence as BT Sport British pundits. It's not yes. usually the sort of company I like to keep, particularly after love it. The, the narrative they were trying to spin last night. They were trying to tell us that this was some sort of heroic Chelsea performance and that they still had a golden opportunity in, in, in this quarterfinal of making it through. I mean, nothing to do with the fact that the pundits on duty for the game were Rio Ferdinand and Joe Cole and Glenn Hoddle, who are all very close friends of Frank Lampard. Nothing nothing, nothing to do with that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nothing at all, for sure. It, it, I, that was, I did not watch that one. I, I watched the other game. And so I then, like, seeing all that coverage was very confused because I was getting messages from my friends saying, this is terrible for Chelsea. Chelsea look like they are the JV squad. And then hearing that coverage and seeing some of that coverage made me confused. So, Graham, I'm glad you're here to correct that record. Obviously, we're going to talk about that match later on. But, Joe, let's start with Man City's demolition of Bayern Munich, a 3-0 win for Manchester City. I think some interesting tactics for both teams, but certainly some better tactics for Man City. Yeah, City are just so good right now. And we talked even a little bit about this game on yesterday's Listener Question Show. That is how dominant City are right now, that they're bleeding into other shows where they don't belong. (laughs) Um, I, I think this is just about as comprehensive as a performance as you could have against a team that is as good as Bayern Munich is. Because, let's be honest, Bayern Munich had a a few moments of danger in this game. They still pose some threat. They don't really have a a number nine in this game. So Chupo Moting was out with an injury. So we saw Serge Gnabry up top for them, which is not really what Thomas Tuchel, I'm guessing, would have preferred coming into this game. At least you want to have the different options in that spot. But on the whole, Bayern Munich caused City some problems, but City did a darn good job of neutralizing the vast majority of them and creating chances of their own, right? They're still in this same 3-2-5 sort of possession shape with John Stones next to Rodri in midfield. You've got Gundogan and, and Kevin De Bruyne in the half spaces. You've got Bernardo and, and Grealish out wide. And, like, they're controlling possession. They're creating some chances. Then later in the match, they switch to that more classic front two with Alvarez and Erling Holland, and they score two goals after that. They, they had one through Rodri in the 27th minute, which was a really nice strike from outside the box. And then Pep makes a couple of changes. They're still in control. They uh, exert that control and really turn it into to goals at the end of this match. In general, like you know, we'll dive into some of the nitty gritty stuff, but you know, at a bird's eye view level, like City just look yeah. like the best team in the world right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's only the quarterfinals and there is a second leg still to come, but this performance... Is there, though? What? Is there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it might be a formality at, at this point, that second leg, but this performance in the first leg, it, it felt like some sort of culmination for Man City watching it, given the circumstances... Given the standard of the opposition, it was just as complete a performance as you could hope for. They were excellent in all areas of the game, as, as Joe kind of outlines there. And by the end of it, I felt like we'd watched the the nailed-on winners of this season's Champions League. They're, they're, they're just so good at the moment that I don't feel... I feel like I don't fully understand what they're doing in a tactical sense. I've still to kind of get my head around this new system that Pep's using. But that just makes me realise how much smarter he is than me. And 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 I think this was arguably their best European performance under Pep Guardiola. I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of a better one. Well, and, and Graham, just to just to go through and tell you, you joked about, you know, is there a second leg? The fact that you can come out against Bayern Munich, put three goals between them and you, and basically make the second leg a formality is ridiculous in this competition because, you know, I think we all agree that City are playing the best soccer in Europe right now. They're playing the best soccer in the world right now. Champions League is chaos, right? And, and anything can happen in this competition, especially in the final, which is just one leg, right? So there's still so many things that could happen. And, and you know, we'd all be a little surprised if City crash out at some point, but not terribly surprised because that's just the nature of knockout competitions. But the fact that City can basically say, yeah, we're already through, right? There's three games between us and lifting this trophy. Everybody else still has to play four. Like, even that, I mean, okay, maybe Real Madrid doesn't have to play four, but, you know, most of these clubs still have more games to play. City have already put themselves just that little bit closer to actually doing this thing. Joe, from a tactical point of view, do you think this game pans out any differently if it's Nagelsmann in in the dugout rather than Tuchel? Because to me, it seemed like City were pressing very high. That seemed to be a almost a, a six, a unit of six at times that were pressing Bayern very high. They had um, that the, the, the two central midfielders on the, the two Bayern central midfielders as well. And I guess the, the gamble that City are making there is that Bayern aren't going to be able to play through that high press. Do you think a Nagelsmann team has a, has a better shot of doing that or does this just work out the same way? Maybe. I would say a Nagelsmann team might have a better chance of doing that. Either, either way, by the way, Thomas Muller is going to be on the bench. So that, that we can all be, <laughs> be clear about. Uh, I think maybe a Nagelsmann team has a better job, but not necessarily for any tactical reasons, just because it, it kind of would have been hard to do a worse job than Bayern Munich did in this game. City had 15 regains in the final third. So that means they're winning the ball, like regaining the ball in the final third, Bayern Munich's defensive third. That's more than any team in any game in this competition so far. from Upe Meccano, I believe. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so, so I, the reason I say, you know, an Augustman team might have had a better job, you know, maybe they build with a slightly different shape out of the back or they do this or that. But really, you know, we give a lot of credit to City. Some of this stuff is Bayern Munich having a poor game in the back. And so maybe a, a different coach or different, you know, build up to this week or just a different day might get you a slightly different result. And yes, I think I am mostly talking about Dio Upe Meccano. I mean, I, I think Opamakano is worth discussing for a moment. He's a player yeah. that I have long... I've, I'll give credit where credit is due. Sam Ty was the one to introduce me to the idea that Opamakano can have a 99% great game, but is always going to have that 1% moment of like, ooh, he probably didn't mean to do that. And in this game, he had... More than 1% of those moments, uh, leading directly to a goal, looking very shaky. This was the definitive uh, quicksand game, in my mind. Uh, Lots of references all over the place, from uh, the replacements with Keanu Reeves. The idea that once you start making those mistakes, especially those high-profile mistakes, you start to lose that confidence and you lose the ability to execute really simple things, including simple passes, making decisions. Uh, That one giveaway that leads to the goal is him just sort of limiting his options with each touch he takes, and he takes way too many. And it was just being ponderous on the ball, but he wasn't alone. I thought this was... Maybe the worst game I've seen from Alfonso Davies. I, I, there was much consternation in the broadcast as to why Opamakana was left on and Davies was taken off, but that it made sense to me because I did not think Alfonso Davies certainly was doing the defensive side of things that were needed, but also wasn't really facilitating yeah. attacking play. I thought Musiala was pretty anonymous. I thought Serge Gnabry was once again pretty poor. So, Joe, to your point, this was also individually poor performances, but I do think Nagelsmann would have maybe set that team up a little bit better. I don't think Gamabri would have started up top, for example. I do think Chupa Moteng probably would have. Maybe even Thomas Muller would have been involved. Unlikely, but you never know. Uh, Moteng is hurt, just FYI. Chupa Moteng is, is injured, so he wasn't available. But then somebody else would have started. That's fair. But no, I, I think, I just think, okay, put it this way then. With Chupa Moteng injured, Nagelsmann has more experience with this squad and I think knows how to better get 
like performances out of players if you have to put them into new or unexpected sure. positions. And I don't think an Aubrey had the necessary amount of information down to know exactly where he needed to be to cover space, to block options. And so I think in that way, Nagelsmann probably would have been able to make adjustments more readily, more yeah. on the fly than Thomas Tuchel was. I think Chupamoting being injured for this match, um, if he is available, I do wonder if things pan out a little bit differently for Bayern Munich, just because without him, they had no out, no, no out ball at all. And I thought that was really evident in the, in the first half where... City were stopping Bayern progressing through the middle and then that was forcing Bayern into these sort of Hollywood diagonal passes. And if Trooper Moting is on the pitch, they, they could have gone gone into him and there's just no central threat when he is missing. I, I do have some sympathy. Taylor, you mentioned Alfonso Davies. He did have a, a, a poor game. But I do have some sympathy for him because City put Bernardo Silva on him and he is just so important to Man City in matches uh, like this. He he was picked to start over Riyad Mahrez. And I think a big reason for that is what he gives you off the ball. And he pinned Alfonso Davies back on that side. And Silva also presses the centre-backs. And, and, and there was a telling quote from Pep after the Leipzig match where he said uh, Silva has, quote, the ability to know exactly how to press three players in two movements, which is exactly what he does for this Man City team. And, and watching this game, it kind of it kind of hit me that he's Man City's uh, Parchi Sung. He's a, he's a special ops player that when, you know, in a, in a game where you have free roam, maybe you put in Riyad Mahrez because he's obviously a little bit more creative, has a bit more goal threat. But in the big matches, Silva is who you want for how he stops other teams while also offering something in an attacking sense on his own. Yeah. Yeah, two things. So first of all, Bernardo Silva is 28. He's going to be playing elite level soccer until he's like 36, maybe 37. He's he's. We've seen him play left back this season. We've seen him play central midfield. We've seen him play higher up. We've seen him in the half spaces. Now we see him out wide for large stretches of games. His baseline technical ability and understanding of the game is just so evident when you watch him play. And that is going to make him a fixture at a really high level for a long time. His game is not built on athleticism, right? It's not built on straight line speed or strength. And when that's the case and you can still perform year after year after year, uh, it's it's a good indicator that you're going to be around this level for a while. So that's that's the first thing. I love that quote, Graham. This is the second thing that you brought up uh, that, from Pep there about how Bernardo can press three players in two movements. I hadn't seen that, but I think it does lead into one thing that I have noticed from this game and one thing that we talked about after City destroyed Leipzig in the last round, which was City pressing in those curved runs from their outside midfielders. So they're, they're pressing in a 4-4-2 shape City. That's something that Pep switched to a couple of years ago now in the middle of a season when they were struggling. And now that's become their default pressing shape. So it was De Bruyne next to Holland as the front two. You've got Gundogan and Rodri in the midfield. And then you've got Bernardo on the right and Grealish on the left. Those players, and what I think Pep means by two movements is, you know, let's say the ball is is on Bernardo's side. So in this case, that would be Bayern Munich's left side, Man City's right side. The ball comes out to a fullback, maybe it comes out to Alfonso Davies. The first movement, if I had to guess what Pep is talking about, and, and from what I see, the first movement is Bernardo Silva going to press Alfonso Davies, right? So that's simple enough. Then the next movement is as Bayern Munich rotate the ball back to the other side because there's no outlet because Alfonso Davies is blocked or maybe it's it's the center back on that side delict that's blocked. They rotate the ball back to the other side and Bernardo keeps going, right? He curves his run towards the goalkeeper and Grealish would do the same thing on the other side, right? They curve their runs inside such that, you know, they're essentially blocking with their back, with their cover shadow, right? Everything behind them. They're blocking off access to the center back, to the fullback, and then they're going to press the goalkeeper. So in two movements, sort of the initial press towards the defensive player on that side, and then the second press, which is the curved run, which doesn't really, there's no break in between these things, they just sort of keep going. But I mean, City's wingers are so good at that kind of thing. And when you have that quality pressing from the front players, mixed with really strong defensive identity and, and marking from the other outfield players, mixed with, in this case, Bayern Munich struggles to play through the press because they, they really, if they weren't gonna be able to play through, the next bet was to play over because they can't really play into a checking Serge Gnabry and they couldn't play into Musiala dropping in because John Stones was really tight to him and he's going to lose that physical battle. So City just stacked the deck in their favor. Not that it was impossible for Bayern to break out, but in general in this match, they really did a good job of trying to limit the opportunities that Bayern Munich were going to have to play out of the back. I think they also did a good job of frustrating Bayern Munich on occasion, not just in terms of that press and how they went about it, but also a little bit of dark arts. I want to spotlight Bernardo Silva for a moment because 
Graham, if you're going to say he is Manchester City's Park G Sung, I'm going to say he's got a little bit of Paul Scholes sprinkled in, mm. too, in that Paul Scholes seemed to never learn how to tackle, and officials were just okay with it. And Bernardo Silva has that same, like, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that energy. And somehow he always gets away with, uh, like, well, you can't. Next time, don't kick him in the back of the leg and deliberately tread on him. Yeah, I'll be better in the next match, I promise. (laughs) But he's just, he's very clever at that. I do think it's because he's smaller, and so sometimes officials will maybe give a little bit of leeway to smaller players. But he is very, very good at just leaving that foot in, making a little bit of extra contact. A couple of different times when he goes to to cover D- Davies, even if the ball isn't going to him, he does that, like, closes down, the ball goes the other way, and then he uses Davies, he pushes off of Davies' back to start backtracking, and just stuff like that. It's going to get in your head, it's going to annoy you if you're a- an opponent, and you're going to get so focused on, I want to beat that guy 1v1, I want to embarrass him because he's annoying me. You start to lose track of the game plan and you really aren't as focused on the overall uh, level of team play. He's just a very intelligent player in all different areas of his game. And that's something now we're starting to see that intelligence in Jack Grealish on the other side as well. Intelligence and Grealish are previously two things that maybe didn't go together. This is a man who'd never heard of an encyclopedia. Let's not forget. But on the football pitch, he's starting to get those Man City movements when City sold Sterling and Garbo Jesus last summer, I remember bringing this up of um, how Grealish didn't really do those things that in particular Gabriel Jesus did with pressing and he used to do that Bernardo Silva sort of three presses and, and two movement things and Grealish is, is picking it up and that's where the, the mistake for the, is it the Silva header um, where Upamecano coughs up the ball yep. and Grealish wins it and back heels it into Erling Haaland who crosses it into Silva. I mean, Erling Haaland is now crossing the ball into other players to power home headers. It is, it's over. Jack Grealish is winning the ball after pressing high up the pitch and making a quick decision and getting his team into the final third. It's game over. City have completed football. Like, there's, there's no com- competing with this. <laughs> Jack Grealish with the body, the win, and then the backheeled assist, or I guess MLS assist, I should say. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about this game in just a second. I think we've got a few more things to cover. Quick little break, and then we'll finish talking about this game and three other games still to be discussed. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be Offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. We are praising Manchester City for uh, taking it to Bayern Munich, putting Bayern Munich to the sword in the first leg. And Graham, I want to stick with a point you were making there about the the development of Jack Grealish, the ability of Bernardo Silva, Erling Holland crossing the ball. All of this speaks to me to Pep Guardiola, the man manager, and how he has made pretty much every single player on this team better, that he adds new things to their game. And I think that is a lot of his intensity and a lot of his reputation. But this City team is as good an example as I can think of, of him taking disparate parts and making them work. And Nathan Ake is suddenly like a left center back, left back. Who needs to sign more left backs? Uh, Pep Pep signed a few, none of them worked. So let's just stop signing them and we'll just play other players there and somehow it will be fine. Pep is a master at getting players to do multiple things all at once. And I think we're seeing that in this team right now where you mentioned Nathan Ake. Taylor, I think that's a great example. You know, Nathan Ake crucial to the way that City play the ball out from the back when they have possession and then out of possession he moves into that left back position so previously we would talk about how the the fullbacks were have been so important and are so important to Pep Guardiola's team and now he is innovating on what it is to be a fullback and now he is kind of merging the two the two things the centre back and the fullback in together and getting players to do two different things during the match obviously that is not particularly uncommon given that you know different phases of the game in possession out of possession but Guardiola's taking it to the extreme similar sort of thing with Akanji on the right side of the defense and then John Stones in central midfield who I thought was once again brilliant and his ceiling as in that central midfield role just continues to get higher because against Bayern Munich that is not an easy job to do. And he he actually got man of the match from from the from the Champions League for this game. I don't know if he deserved it over Bernardo Silva. I thought he was the best player on the pitch, but nonetheless, he I thought he was very good. How this is so stupid, Graham. You're so right. Like, how is the best version of Pep Guardiola's Manchester City team, the best team that I, I've seen in a while? How is it how is it the one with John Stones in midfield? Like, why is it not the one with Gunduan <laughs> and Rodri deeper in midfield? Or like or Bernardo Silva next to Rodri and I I don't understand. Like it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. How is John Stones the player that's helping to anchor this team? John Stones is a good player, and we've talked about like how good he is in this role. But like, why is why is everything working better with John Stones in this spot than it did with like a player who's played central midfield for a day? De- it just it does it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense to me. I also like that it bucks the trend of Pep historically moving a central midfielder into center back. That's always kind of been his his calling card. He did it at Barcelona. I think he did it at Bayern. He certainly did it at Man City. So moving a center back into center midfield seems like it's the opposite. Seems like it should go poorly. And instead, here we go. Maybe that was the mistake all along. Maybe Barcelona would have won even more trebles if he had done that. The other thing about this is Pep Guardiola is having to strain every fiber in his body not to have a go at the people who claim he overthinks because (laughs) if this doesn't work this is prime material for saying Pep Guardiola has overthought it yes and it has worked so well for Man City I'm surprised he hasn't come out and said ah I'm not overthinking this one am I we're waiting for that well and that's that's the question so I think it's a little too early to do the whole like you know City winning this whole thing and and us being shocked and disappointed if they don't I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little early for that discussion, but I wanted to ask you guys, because I would like to say that I'm, I'm a little bit less on the pep overthink train than, than generally the other three members of the recurring cast here on TSS. But like if pep continues to do this and they lose a game, like, like where is the line? Like, is he in danger of, of us calling him an overthinker from this particular tactical alignment? Does he get the benefit of the doubt because things have worked so well? Taylor, for you, like, what, how do you think about that? I, I think it's historically, at least in my mind, in my memory, it has been him making drastic changes either to formation or to overall approach. So there's the time that he has, I think with Barca, he has the man mark the entire length of the pitch and it does not work. And there are those types of gambits that I think he will roll the dice on in those big moments. This doesn't feel like that. The only way I could see that being the case is if he suddenly reverted to like a, just a standard 4-3-3 yeah. and had John right. Stones stay as a center center back and doesn't move forward and keeps people in the positions that they're like, you know, more accustomed to playing or whatever. 
that would be the overthink for me, abandoning what has clearly been a thing they've been working on and in my mind now perfected. I don't really see another way he could overthink short of completely changing what they're doing from one game to the next. Yeah, the, the, other, the, other, the other thing is, if, if he does something that he's never done before, I think, so the, 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 one, the example that comes into my mind immediately is the 2021 Champions League final yep. against Chelsea, Gundogan, where rather yeah. than just trusting his team that had a talent advantage and was in better form at that point than Chelsea in a one-off game, he responded, he went too far to combating the threats that he thought Chelsea would pose. And looking at that team, I remember the reaction when this team dropped. It was complete bemusement because he'd never done anything like this before where he has Sterling and Mares as a front two. He doesn't have a holding midfielder. He takes Rodri and Fernandinho out of that midfield three. He's got Aguero on the bench, who at that time was still very good. He's got Gabriel Jesus on the, ben- on the bench. And it just wasn't clear how that team was going to operate. And then the match yeah. started and that's exactly... That, that's what happened. You know, the warning signs were, were fair. So I think it's when he tries something that there's no there's no previous track record of this will work in this specific situation. Right. Okay. I think that's all fair. And, and that's a good thing for us to monitor, right? As we're going throughout this competition of, you know, does Pep deviate from this? There's going to be little things, right? You know, in this game, we saw Rodri dropping into the back line a whole bunch and, and build up. And so like, not that that has never happened before, but there's going to be little tweaks, right? He might not do that so much in the next game or whatever it is. But that's an interesting thing to monitor. The last thing I'll say on the overthink thing is I think Pep, and we've given him credit, but expressly in this way, Pep deserves credit for doing this risky thing because that's what we're talking about with the overthinking. It's it's a risk because it's not something we've seen before. This John Stones in midfield thing to get to the same shape we've seen, but with different personnel is very much a weird risky thing that if it didn't work in this game, I would wager a lot of money that the reaction from folks around the media landscape would be you know, Pep overthought it. it. He overthought it. Why is John Stones playing in midfield? And we're kind of joking about this, but I do think Pep deserves like explicit credit for thinking in a very oh, yeah. strange way that I never would have gotten to. Like just for the overthinks, you know, Pep's innovation and his ability to iterate and, and go from one team to the next and one version of positional play to the next with different players in different spots. Like in some ways he is, he is thinking hard, but we would frame this as a successful overthink almost rather than a, a failed one because the results didn't pan out. Joe, a thing uh, to that point, a thing I found myself thinking watching Manchester City versus watching other teams, I won't name them specifically, I know that you are not a big fan of like formation being the understanding of the game. Oh, they played a 4-2-3-1, and so they did this and this and this. That's not always the case. But I do think there are managers who do set their teams up with a, we're playing at a 4-2-3-1, you're my two holding midfielders, you need to For do sure. holding midfielder things. And I think that is a con- more conventional way of approaching tactics and understanding the game. And I think where I, I agree with you is with somebody like Pep Guardiola, who clearly sees that, like the conventional wisdom, and then thinks, well, why is that convention? What does that convention ignore? And then tries to kind of find those little pockets that can be exploited that other people don't think about. And so that is not playing with a, a like set formation, but trusting your players or at least drilling into them the idea that you have to be able to execute nine different things at once in order to make this system work. But if you do, we will play better than any other team ever has. And I think with this group of players, he seems to have found that. So again, it's another sort of, I don't know, uh, check mark in Pep Guardiola's the best manager ever uh, argument for me. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm not far off from saying that one. Uh, and I do think you you then look at Bayern Munich, who were a team that when we did the draft of like remaining Champions League teams, I think what Ryan took Napoli first. Did you have the second pick or did I, Joe? I can't I, remember who I took I don't one. remember. Bayern came off the board early, didn't they? Like, yeah. I, I think they one were One of us hot, took Man City. Yeah. One of us took Bayern. And yeah. I think at the time, if it was me, it was because I thought Nagelsmann had ideas for how to get the best out of this Bayern team and make them function well. And here we are now with their players getting into a fight and, and players being injured and players being sort of left on the bench and not seeming like they're in Thomas Tuchel's plans. Not only do I think this fixture is over, I I think it could be worse in the second leg. Because if you're Thomas Tuchel, I don't think you can go out and play for a nil-nil draw and then say, well, at least we didn't lose. I think you have to try to make something happen. I think you have to try to get a goal in that first half. And in my mind, that kind of plays right into Manchester City's hands of great, get overexposed, get overcommitted, and we will counter and score. I could see this being another thumping win for Manchester City at Bayern Munich. You never know. Bayern Munich could pull something back, but it seems very unlikely. If they do, my final thought on this game is just that it will require Jan Sommer to once again be excellent. A 3-0 scoreline normally would make you think the goalkeeper was poor. 
I thought he kept this from being 6-0, 7-0. I don't know. He had some saves that he had no business making. He has the one on Rodri at the very end of the game that he somehow keeps out, keeps from going in. I thought he has some shaky moments in distribution. I also think he wasn't done favors by some of the back passes. But I thought Jan Sommer was the far and away best player for Bayern Munich in this game. A Bayern Munich that didn't have many standout good performers. Uh, any other thoughts from either of you about this one? Just I have I've never been more certain that City are going to win the Champions League than I am right now. Just because the field as well. It's a dangerous looking game. At the field, it's a dangerous game. Um. So the the thing that struck me what this week was the four uh, Premier League teams. Uh, three of them have had like historically bad seasons this year. So Liverpool, Spurs, and Chelsea have all collapsed which has kind of left City as the Premier League's only representative. And then PSG are out, Barcelona aren't in the Champions League, Arsenal who are top of the Premier League aren't in, uh, they're in the Europa League, they're not in the Champions League. It kind of feels like, look, I know what Joe says, and they're one-off matches and anything can happen, but at this point, I would be surprised if City don't win this thing. Yeah, I'm guessing you're not getting great, like... You've got to bet a lot to win a little on Manchester yes, City yeah. uh, winning the Premier League, put it that Certainly. way, or uh, the Champions League, excuse me. Uh, maybe they, it's, it's stranger that it's like more of a contest in the Premier League uh, than it might be in the Champions League. But Joe, I know that makes you uh, uncomfortable. So you're, you're right. I feel like Graham and I are dooming them to somehow losing to Real Madrid in the next round. Yep. We'll talk about Real Madrid in just a second. First, let's talk Benfica's 2-0 loss to Inter. So... When we were previewing these games, I think I concluded that it felt like all of us were thinking the home team would uh, be the dominant team. This was the only one that bucked that trend. Benfica losing uh, to an Inter team that looked better than they've looked in in quite some time. Uh, Graham, what did you make of this performance uh, from Inter? Let's start there. So to me, it looked like Inter went back to the sort of Antonio Conte muscle memory of being a team that is comfortable inviting possession on top of them, staying compact and then using pace and incisive play, I guess, to to get forward. I thought Bastoni was brilliant in this match. He was central to the way that Inter got out through good uses of um, of long passes. Uh, Barella is a sensational player and his header sort of broke open this match. For Inter, the ground he covers, the the defensive and attacking actions he contributes. I think he's one of the very best at what he does, and, and Inter are very fortunate to have him. And then having the the front two of Jeko and and Lukaku Lukaku to play off and around. I mean, this Inter team is so weird in that they clearly have a lot of quality. And looking through their lineup for this game, this is potentially them back to full strength. They've had a lot of injuries this season to key players, Lukaku being one of them. Um, but they they fall out of their groove so easily. So they clearly have a strong advantage in this tie. I am not as confident as I am with the City Bayern game of saying this one is over, just because I yeah. do think Benfica have it in them to go to San Siro and pull this pull this tie back. They are going to have to play much better than they did in this match. I thought it was a surprisingly poor performance by by Benfica, um, which came on the back of a home defeat to Porto last weekend. So after winning about 100 matches in a row this season, Benfica have now lost back-to-back matches and and they deserve to lose them. Um, In one theory, in the Portuguese press, I went and had a look through uh, Record and some of the other Portuguese newspapers this morning. Their theory is that it's fatigue because Roger Schmidt hasn't rotated his team much at all over the course of the season. And we saw that in the lack of changes in, in, in this game. So it is possible that they've hit the wall at the worst possible possible time. I thought Gonzalo Ramos, he had a poor game. Um, he was kind of sloppy in possession play. He missed a golden chance at the end as well. Alex Grimaldo was probably the best Benfica player on the pitch, but there just wasn't much movement in front of him. And Alexander Ba being missing for, missing for Benfica um, meant that they were too frequently looking to the left wing when normally they have that balance between the left and the right wing. And what normally happens is Ba pushes up and then Jao Mario tucks into the central areas. But there just wasn't that dynamic at all. The the only big positive for Benfica, I thought, was that David Neres uh, coming off the bench, he made a, a pretty big impact and almost every one of Benfica's big chances came from something that he did. But Schmidt waited until the, 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 the 65th minute to put him on, which I think was a mistake. So... He has to start the second half. There needs to be a better dynamic, better balance on the right side of of, of, of their attack. And if they can do that, they've got a chance because as we've seen from Inter this season, consistency has been an issue for them, but they deserve to win this. Joe, uh, in this game, Benfica had 12 total shots. 
an XG of 1.79 to Inter's 1.71. Zero goals for Benfica. Should they have done better, given that expected goals number? I mean, if anything, they've they've hit those shots too well. You hit them so cleanly that they just can't find the back of the net. I mean, Benfica are in some ways unfortunate not to get something out of this game. The penalty is brutal for for them and, and for that to hit Jao Mario's arm. Mm-hmm. It is in an unnatural position in that spot as he's jumping on on the left side of their box. So that's that's a tough moment. And the goal to Inter score is a really nice one but it's not like the super intricate piece of play from them. It's a nice bit of buildup. And Bastoni, I know I know you led me with Benfica, and I'll get there in a second, but Bastoni is unreal at the left center back spot. I talk about him in seemingly every Champions League campaign, and whenever we talk about Inter on Weekend He's 23 review, as well. He's young. He's, so he's, young. He, he's young, entering very much his prime. He is the most aggressive center back that actually plays as a center back, so the most aggressive non-city center back that I've seen in such a long time. You go on FB Ref, and you can see... You know, their their progressive passing, the progressive carries, their, you know, expected assists, all that stuff. He's like maxed out green on everything for a center back. He is he is like the peak ball carrying center back, and I love him very much. So he is responsible in a lot of ways for the, the first goal that Inter scored. But yeah, Benfica have to feel disappointed. Gonzalo Ramos has been running so hot. I think he has two shots in this game. You know, it's I don't think he had the worst performance. Like he still got into a couple of good spots, but you want it you want him in the ball, you want him on the ball more as close to the box as possible. It's a difficult one for Benfica. I think they thrive in transition more than they thrive in possession against elite teams. And so for Inter to give them the ball and say, hey, you got to do something with this. I don't think that's really what Benfica wanted, what what Schmidt wants coming into a game like this. So, yeah, it, it feels to me like they left something on the table in this match. And it's going to be very, very difficult for them to get back. Quiet shouts to Edin Dzeko, by the way. We we give lots of props to Zlatan Ibrahimovic for being injured but still playing at 41. Uh, Dzeko at 37, still starting Champions League games and making a difference uh, and picking up a yellow card for his efforts. So credit to him, credit to Inter. We shall see what happens in that uh, return leg. They will be at home, Inter Milan, uh, with, I think, a lot of expectation that they will advance, maybe to meet uh, their crosstown rivals. We'll talk about that match and uh, Real Madrid's win in just a second. First, one more break. Welcome back, gentlemen. Let's talk Real Madrid's 2-0 win over Chelsea. Joe, Todd Bowley, Chelsea owner, predicted a, a thumping win for Chelsea. I don't <laughs> think that's quite how this played out. Those interviews are so awkward. I don't know if you guys saw it. They're like, you know, it's always the billionaire walking to their car. Like, that's the only time you can snag him. And so it's always this British dude, like, asking eight different questions that, that he's probably not ever had time to think through all the way because he didn't know if he was going to get to talk to Todd Bowley or not. And Todd Bowley, or, you know, inter-random billionaire owner here, just gives, like, this one-sentence half-answer that means absolutely nothing and tells you nothing. Except in this game, we got to know that Todd Bowley thought that Chelsea were going to beat Real Madrid 3-0. Why was uh, he so sad? He says well, it, like, I, three times as well. He keeps I, repeating that scoreline. I get the idea of saying, like, you know what, I, I believe in this team. You know, we're, we're building into something. Like, you know, we're going to put in a good performance. I In this current situation for Chelsea, I don't think I would have mentioned a scoreline personally, but to go 3-0, like, say 1-0, or, like, we're going to win by one. Like, I I don't know why you would Just ever come out there and say for three. the game. That's right. all you need to say. There's so I'm many other things. Game. There's so many other We're going to be the most blue-wearing team in this game, I'll tell you that much. We're I'm not afraid so to blue. say that. We're going to wear blue, and Madrid can't do anything about it. In fact, I'm thinking of renaming our nickname to the Blues, because no other hey. managers ever thought about that before. No other owner. That's what we're going to do. I... I don't know why he said that, because coming into this game, it was so clear the hierarchy between these two teams. One team, uh, dominant Champions League perennial winners, and the other team in Chelsea, a team that don't really have an identity at the moment. They're not able to come in at an elite level and exert what they want to do on the opposition. So in this match, we saw it was more of a back four shape for uh, for Chelsea against Wolves in the Premier League in Lampard's first game. In this match, we see a 5-3-2, which is in my view, a very sensible tactical decision when you're up against Real Madrid. Adding an extra number in the back line makes sense. Pack it in, boys. It was, it was it a defensive-minded <laughs> midfield group when you have, well, at least it wasn't a super you know, fluid uh, you know, yeah. attacking midfield group, I'll say that much. So it's Kovacic on, on the right side of central midfield, Enzo Fernandez in the middle, and N'Golo Conte on the left. And then you had the front two of Raheem Sterling and Joao Felix. They were very much trying to attack on the break. And they had some good chances in the opening stages, Chelsea did. Or at least they had some good counterattacking moments. I didn't think the execution was all that good. And you go through and you look at their XG in this game and it's low. I think they they missed out on a couple of moments that could have been more effective and led to even higher quality moments and maybe nicked a goal early on in this match. But 
Real Madrid do Real Madrid things. It is so difficult to stop this team. Vinicius Jr. and Benzema, Graham, I'll, I'll let you, I'll pass the torch to you on them, but they're they're unreal. Like this Real Madrid team is very, very good. They have the ingredients for knockout soccer. I, uh, this is the reason. This Real Madrid team and that goal, to be honest, the first goal in this match that, that Benzema scores, like, that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to say that City are, are absolutely going to run away with this thing because you can count Real Madrid out. It can be this sort of little half chance moment that you, you wonder how they get there and somehow Benzema's got the ball in the back of the net and, are, and then they're dancing. It, does, it just doesn't make sense all the time, but this team is scary good. Yeah, not, not to give myself too much credit but this match played out exactly how I thought it would and I and I had a, a four-leg uh, wager on this match that came through for me so I have receipts on that damn it that prove that it, it, it played out how I thought it would I, I have not seen those receipts so until I'll, I'll I see post them, them in the chat afterwards I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical. Um, I had Vinicius Jr. as a, a goal and assist I think I had Real Madrid 90 minutes I had uh, both teams to score no because I thought Chelsea wouldn't score I had uh, Benzema to have uh, at least one shot on target and I had Vinicius goal or assist over 90 minutes and they all of those came in on my parlay Vinicius in particular is just he's just phenomenal I mean this is a this is a weekly segment it's it's becoming on Vinicius Jr talking about how good he is he is all about those one-on-ones and he continually looked to take on his man in this match so he completed seven take-ons which was more than any other uh, any other player and he's completed 87 take-ons in the Champions League this season as a whole which is is more than any other player in the competition as well and I think the defensive the Chelsea defensive three was meant to play narrow and kind of restrict the exchange play between Vinicius and and Benzema but Real Madrid realized that they could push their fullbacks into the half space and push Vinicius in particular out wide to then isolate the Chelsea wingbacks and and get at the right side centre-back as well. I I don't know what shape would have worked against Vinicius because a player who just stands up opponents like him sort of takes formations and tactics out of the equation in that moment where he's just skipping by people. But it's fair to say that Chelsea didn't contain contain him as they (laughs) hoped that he would, understatement there. He had had 19 touches in the opposition box in that game, which was more than any other player in a single Champions League game this season. But Chelsea as a team managed 10. So half of what Vinicius manager <laughs> managed on his own. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Uh, also not bad, I, I want to give credit to Thierry Henry, the logical person to give credit to uh, for this game, because he did a great sort of post-match breakdown of two specific moments in contrasting Joao Felix and Vinicius. Joe, there's that moment you mentioned Chelsea on the break. Uh, they counter and, and Felix is in on goal. And... Uh, this is I loved t- hearing Thierry Henry talk about this because it's such a little thing, but it is so important that Felix has, uh, I think, the better of Eder Militao. He has him beat, but then he continues to carry the ball sort of at a wider angle. And Henry's point was, you always cut across that defender because they're going to foul you and it's going to be a red card or they're going to have to slow up. And now you've opened up that gap and your center so you can pass it into either side of the goal. But Felix kind of keeps going in the same uh, angle, and so he kills it a little bit, but as a result, he then tries to cut it back too late. Militao is there and makes up that play. And it's just that little lack of precision that I think is representative of Chelsea's overall lack of precision. Whereas Vinicius, and this was another on repoint, he has the one that leads to Modric shooting over from a, from a good angle. But it's him 1v1 with Reese James, and I think he recognizes with the ball, I'm not going to beat Reese James with speed. So he slows up, then accelerates, and gives Reese James a stiff arm at the same time. But it's quick enough that it's not called for a foul, but it puts Reese James off, and that's how he's able to then sort of get away from him to then uh, play that ball in. And just that little bit of gamesmanship, that little bit of awareness is that difference, and it can be that difference. And I thought Madrid had that gamesmanship on the evening, and I thought Chelsea very much did not. So credit to Thierry Henry for spotlighting those two things and uh, uh, because I think that really did a good job for me of explaining just how this game played out. Yeah, one one player who certainly didn't help Chelsea in a defensive sense against the Real Madrid transition was Mark Cucurella, who <laughs> is a very confusing player to me. I, I'm probably on record at some point praising Mark Cucurella, and and I still I believe on some level he yeah. is he is a good player. Um, I didn't think he was a what, what did Chelsea pay for him again like sixty million. I thought that was ridiculous. But him going to Chelsea as a signing, just talking about a player going into their squad, I thought was a good addition. But man, as I say, he is confusing to me. I mean, why is he being used 
as a central defender is my first question. In Spain, that was never his position. He he was a winger, and at and at Brighton, he was also used in a high wide role. In a in a central position, he he can't handle the speed of a match like this, and and we saw that in the way that uh, Ben Chilwell gets his gets his red card, where Real Madrid are so good at slowing down the pace of the game, they they bring it to walking pace almost, and then they do that thing where it's either Vinicius or Rodrigo or Benzema, they drop deep, they spin, they 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 bounce the pass off to someone else, they spin in behind, Real Madrid play the ball over the top, and Real Madrid are in behind goal. Cucurella gets sucked in. And then leaves Chilwell with a very difficult decision. I, I have to say, I, I don't think it's a great decision from Ben Chilwell either. I think I probably would have let the player and count, uh, let the player go and counted on Kepa making a save. But I appreciate that it's a split second thing that Chilwell has to weigh up, and he takes the red card. Cucurella should have to serve that suspension, in my opinion. That should that should be the punishment for Mark Cucurella. I do think Chilwell, a, a better coached and prepared team. Would it like I think Chilwell would have known to slide over as soon as Kukurea went, but then there's also the argument of did he even know that Kukurea was going to go? Was that a thing he'd been instructed not to do, but just did anyway? Either way, not a great sequence, and especially not great for Ben Chilwell. That's such a like it, it, it's such a slight tug, but when you watch it over and over again, you see just how it completely did pull Rodrigo off the ball. It pulled him down. It's a justified red card. It's outside the box as well, which is going to further that one. I think if it were inside the box, it still might have been a red card because he's not making a play on the ball. He's making a play on the man. So I have some sympathy for Ben Joel, but also not great work from him either. What? Not great work from Chelsea on the whole. What is what is worse in that situation? And again, I appreciate Chilwell has to make a split second decision mm-hmm. and can't weigh all these things up. But what is worse, Chilwell taking the red cards and fouling him outside the box and it's a foul, or make it, trying to make a play on the ball inside the box, giving away the penalty and taking the yellow? What what do you think is the better decision? I there? think anything is that an doesn't answer? give up the penalty is the better decision, right? I mean, the thing is, it's not a guarantee that you bring him down in the box, right? So it's it's not totally cut and dry. But if but, go ahead. When you take the red card, even though it's one nil, that that's the game done for Chelsea at that point. Whereas at two nil, there's still the opportunity to maybe grab a goal, and it's a two legged tie. I don't know. I don't know if it's as cut and dry I, as cut and dry as that. I also don't think he like it was necessarily Rodrigo was fully in on goal. Like yes, he 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 is in. Showell is not going to be able to really stop him, but it's still a a tighter angle, and and you could back your goalkeeper to make the play to make that save. Uh, and instead, Chilwell uh, makes that contact. Again, as you said, it's split-second decisions. It's tough to really criticize. But when you're looking at this Chelsea team as a whole, I think it was lots and lots of split-second split decisions that weren't made or were made incorrectly that culminate in, in this loss. And this is another one where th- them going home, maybe Frank Lampard has time to figure some things out and, and get his team right and take it to Real Madrid. But it's another one that sort of feels done to me or pretty close to done because Real Madrid I, I, I don't think are in the business of coughing up two no leads uh, in the Champions League yeah. stranger things have happened but my money would be on Madrid to advance and they also have the coolest manager in the world also in Don Carlo the man who, who can make me through this match yes, the, dri- the, the juggle is just a, it's just incredible it's I want to be Carlo Ancelotti when I grow up please <laughs> we all do I actually I'm not going to lie. I, true story. I can only wink with one eye. I can't wink with my left eye, only my right eye. And I started practic- practicing it because my theory is that if you can do both, then you can control your eyebrows a little bit more. And then I can have his eyebrow abilities. And that's what I'm working on. I think if we all want to be Carlo Ancelotti as we age, we've got to have control of the eyebrows. Graham, can you do it? Can you independently move your eyebrows already? Kind of. Joe, I mean, Joe let's see yours. Uh, I cannot. They both go up for together an audio, and uh, medium. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're right. Never mind. I'm doing it perfectly, and I look just <laughs> like him. You'll never know, listeners. You'll never know. Uh, one more game, unless you have any other thoughts on Madrid's tuna win over Chelsea. Real Madrid, good. Ancelotti got his game plan right. The players adapted really well. I, it's hard to tell if Ancelotti knew they were coming out in the 5-3-2 for Chelsea. Maybe that was like an hour before the kickoff kind of thing. But to push the fullbacks inside, Graham, you mentioned it earlier. Like That was the right thing to do in this game. You know, Camavinga's already a midfielder. Push him inside. Uh, you're not getting a whole lot out of Carvajal in the overlap at this point in his career anyway. Get them inside, push the wingers wide, overload the midfield, create those little half-space pockets that that you can pass in from. That's where the assist comes from, from Carvajal. Basically the assist on the first goal. Just all in all, a, a very good Madrid performance, and that City-Madrid game is going to be really fun. 
It it sure it, you never know though, Joe. You never know what Byron and Chelsea could could spring. Yeah, we it's true. Do. Never mind. Uh, we also were leaning towards Milan getting this win over Napoli, which they did. I think I was maybe on the fence slash slightly more pro Napoli. Of the two of you, did did you both feel like Milan were going to come away with, with with a win out of this one? I I think I, I, I think I said on the listener question show when we did our top fours that I thought Milan would be bounced by Napoli like pretty quickly so that they would finish in the top four. I can't honestly can't remember if that's what I said, but I, th- I think that was my reasoning. So I uh, I thought we'd see a little bit more from Napoli in this game. Yeah. Graham? Yeah, I I, I had Milan uh, win or draw on my uh, parlay. Sure for, you did. For, for, uh, I can pro- provide the receipts <laughs> this ima- again. This imaginary actually, receipt actually, that's going to be it was, tip, it was tips for a, a well-known betting website, so they are actually out there. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned this on the, was it the weekend review or did we do a preview for the Patreon of the Champions League games? It just feels like Napoli are in a, in a difficult moment in their season. They've still got a big enough um, lead in Serie A. They're going to win the Scudetto, but... It, there is this growing theory in Italy that AC Milan have Napoli's number. Now, that is a small sample size that they are basing that theory on. Two matches, essentially. But Napoli have been knocked out of their, out of their stride by, Nap- eh, by Milan excuse me, in those, in those two games. And I thought um, Cavaradona was very quiet in this game. He has that chance in the first few minutes, oh. which is cleared off the line. But other than that, he was very quiet. Milan cut off the supply into him. And when he did get the ball, Calabria just shut them down so I think Napoli have some problems to solve before the second leg the biggest one I'll hand the mic over at this point but the biggest one is probably if Victor Osman is still un- unavailable what do they do because the two matches that they played against Milan without him it hasn't gone to plan yeah it, it's it was devastating to not have Osimhen and then also to have Simeone injured, meaning because he has deputized well on occasion. Uh, I hope that one or both of them are back for that second leg because if not, Napoli are missing those two strikers. They'll be missing Angisa, who picks up a second yellow yeah. red card in this game. That was a pretty foolish decision on his part. Uh, Kim, the, the center back, also picks up a yellow card. Uh, and because of accumulation, he is suspended. So Napoli really have a lot to do uh, at home. It's only 1-0. Stranger things have happened. I think that's the fourth time I've said that on this episode. Uh, but given some of those injuries and suspensions, I think they have to have Osimhen back uh, or Simeone back or this one is maybe too much for them. Because Milan in this game, I thought executed their game plan perfectly. Uh, I I thought they had some great individual performers. Uh, The Diaz turn out of pressure to launch the counter that leads to the goal was incredible. The finish from Benacer is emphatic. But in the second half, I thought Milan just did an incredible job of slowing the game down. They took super long to take throw-ins. They took super long to take any restart. Lots of players staying down with injury. Lots of players just making things like taking the energy out of this game completely. And I want to also give credit to Teo Hernandez, who uh, gets into it a little bit uh, with, I can't remember if it was uh, Rui or or who it was on the side. No, it was uh, Chucky Lozano. And Lozano then goes at him a minute later. I think Lozano was walking a fine line, so he gets subbed off. Teo Hernandez is then the one to get the first yellow. He draws the first yellow off on Gisa and goes back at him. I'm trying to look at my notes real quick, but it's like, what, like three minutes later, I think he goes right back at him and draws that other foul for another yellow. That felt deliberate to me, so it felt like Milan uh, just sort of uh, out dark arts to out sort of boring Napoli in this game and made this a difficult one for Napoli to get back into. Ultimately, they could not. Yeah, and that's going to be the second leg as well, with Milan having the advantage in this match. Under Pioli, I mentioned this when we talked about Christian Pulisic and maybe the next move and why Milan could be a good fit for him. They like to play in transition. Like, they don't always want to overextend and, and build up in this really intricate way. Not that they they won't. And when they have the talent advantage against other teams in Serie A, we do see them use the ball, of course. But in this match in particular, you could just see their counterattacking DNA. Like, you know, in, in various stages, you had Rafael Leal being a one-man counterattack, even after, like, a sloppy touch. He can still recover and get forward. He was dangerous on the break in this game. And Brahim Diaz, we mentioned that turn. Taylor, you said about it. You said it with that turn sort of splitting two players. It was beautiful to start the attack. And, and the thing that makes Diaz so special and fits so well with this Milan team at times is not because he's a great creator, like, he's not the guy that's threading Mesut like, passes to, 
Rafael Leal or to Giroud. That, that's not his game. He's a ball progressor. Like, he is someone that is really clean in tight spots who can beat a guy on the dribble and then be the guy that's playing the pass before the pass. That's Brahim Diaz's game. You go through and look at his, his numbers, and you watch the tape and look at the numbers, and they align. He's in the 66th percentile, just the 66th among attacking midfielders and wingers in Europe's big five leagues. Now, that's an FB ref designation, not a Joe Lowry designation, to be clear. But in the big five leagues, he's in the 66th percentile for basically expected assists. So for expected assisted goals over the last year. So he's he's a good but not great chance creator. But he is a good to great progressor. He's in the 73rd and 86th percentiles, respectively, for progressive carries and progressive passes in those big leagues. So you, know, you can see there's a noticeable bump in he can get you the ball into a good spot and then leave it for someone else to finish the job. And that for Milan on the break when you have other players, especially a Rafael Leao, who can go and be dangerous and maybe be the, the goal dangerous or like goal adjacent kind of player, you know, the combination works really well on the break. And and Napoli didn't really have anyone doing that job for them because I mentioned this in the weekend review that Elmas was the player against, uh, who were they playing at the weekend? Lecce, I think, to one away win. And El- Elmas, because of the lack of Joe and I completely silent on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> Elche. <laughs> Elche played Spain. Lecce. Lecce. <laughs> uh, um, the, yeah, so Napoli didn't have a Bra- Abraham Diaz figure who could take create those moments in transition and progress the ball. And Elmas would normally be that player. He was that player against Lecce at the weekend. But he's playing as number nine because there's no Osimhen. Raspadori's got an injury. Simeone's carrying an injury. And Spalletti didn't really have any other options. So as much as Osimhen, having um, him on the sidelines is a big issue. And Napoli are very good at constructing intricate passing moves, but they also like to just stick a ball into Osman and go, right, you control that and bring others into the game and use your long limbs and use your technical ability and your physical ability. That is an issue, but it also has a knock-on effect on that midfield, which doesn't have the same ability to progress the ball when you kind of shuggle things around a little bit. It's a strange series of games that coming away from it, I mean... Like, yes, there's a red card in this one, and that changes the flow of it. And credit to uh, Pioli, the Milan manager, for as soon as that red card happens, like, encouraging his players to up the tempo. I think he scented that there was blood in the water, and maybe there could have been another goal or or two. Instead, it finishes 1-0. That one seems like it's the one that could swing the other way, but if you have the the injured players not coming back, and if you have those suspensions, which you will... I, I don't know how Napoli get back into it. I don't know how Chelsea get back into it. Same for Bayern Munich. Maybe Benfica Inter is the one that has the most to play for, but it does feel to me like all four of these, like I, I would feel pretty comfortable saying that the teams that won these four games are the teams that are going to advance out of their respective pairings. So I felt pretty good about tipping AC Milan for this first leg. I think it's really on a knife edge for the tie mm. as a whole. This, this is the one that I wouldn't like to call either way because as much as Napoli have all those issues... This is a team that has been blowing opposition sides away in Serie A. So, so yeah, the, the margin might be narrower, but they might still have that advantage over AC Milan, who haven't really been very good at all in 2023. So I, I can't really call this one. I think AC Milan is maybe a bad matchup for Napoli on the whole, but I still have to look at how Napoli have done this season and think there's a chance that at home they find a 2-0 win and get through the semis. I would be fine with that. I would enjoy that immensely. Uh, But if not, we'll have uh, the Milan Derby in one side. We'll have Real Madrid and Manchester City most likely in the other. Some interesting fixtures there. I'm pretty excited for those. Joe, I'm also very excited that we have an all-MLS CONCACAF Champions League semifinal. Very briefly, uh, credit to the Philadelphia Union for coming back to get the win to advance past Atlas. Uh, And then we have LAFC in there as well. They cruise past Vancouver. So we get LAFC and Philly in one semifinal. We'll have an MLS representative in the final, but we also get a rematch of MLS Cup between two of the best teams in the league. Yeah, I mean, credit to to Philly in particular for getting through. You know, it's it's been an impressive run for them. I believe they've been in the CCL semifinals in two of the last three seasons. For a club that doesn't spend a lot of money and tries to find every margin they can, it is a real success story. So they uh, they beat Atlas 1-0 at home in the first leg. That was last week. And then they drew 2-2 last night as we're recording on Thursday to, uh, to get the job done. And that was a 2-2 draw in Mexico as well. So credit to them for doing that. LAFC had a lot of success against Vancouver and are just in a class along with Seattle of their own in the Western Conference right now and maybe even in MLS as a whole. 
So getting those two teams matched up against each other will be fun. And like you said, one of them will be in the final, almost certainly against one of Lyon or Tigres. So Lyon, we know, will be in the semifinals on the other side of the bracket. They beat Violette, which is the team that beat Austin, 5-0 last week. And then they lost 2-1 this week. So just incredible by Violette. And I wanted to call them out in particular because to get a result and to advance past Austin, a team that spends so much more money than you do, and then to beat Lyon, granted in the second leg when things were already done, but to get that result, just beyond impressive. And they deserve a ton of credit for that. So it'll be one of Lyon or Tigres. So we'll get an MLS versus Liga Mekis team almost certainly in this uh, in this final in CCL, and it's going to be fun. Like, this feels like a year where MLS very much has a shot, just like they did last year. This year, I think the Liga Mekis field is is slightly stronger, maybe not dramatically so, but year after year, at least last year and this year, we're starting to see more competitive games between these teams. Let's see if the trend continues as this competition goes on and as the years go on. Uh, genuinely, I do not mean disrespect. I'm asking from a broadcast league confederation standpoint, is the like ideal matchup in terms of numbers and viewers LAFC versus Tigres? Do you think for at sure. this point? For yeah. sure, yeah. Twenty twenty yeah. rematch, except not in the COVID fever dream. I think that's the way to go. All right. Well, I look forward to if that match happens. I look forward to if Philadelphia makes the final. Hopefully one of them gets the win. Uh, And I always look forward to talking to you two. But today I very much enjoyed it because you've helped me make sense of some of these games that did not make sense. Uh, So Graham Ruffin, thank you for that, even if I still don't believe uh, in some of your betting habits. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Taylor, Ro- Taylor Rockwell. Can you help me make sense of Mark Cucurella? If you're understanding everything now, can you help me in that regard? Was good, not good. Uh, Joe oh, Lowry, uh, thank you <laughs> as well, my friend. I never doubt anything you say. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much. I mean, all right, all right. There you go. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Perfect. All right. You've been uh, scushed. You've there been scushed. it is. I was trying to remember the word. Uh, we're not even over an hour, and we're already making it weird. Uh, listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again on Friday for the big thing when we discuss Lionel Messi and what happens next for him.